0: Many of us ever know what it is to become the perfect version of ourselves? This is Decoding Superhuman
1: with your host, Boomer Anderson.
0: Why hello, superhumans. It's Boomer Anderson here, bringing you another episode of the Decoding Superhuman podcast. As always, we're going out to the health fringes, back to the mainstream, and giving you bite-sized, pieces of actionable information that you can use in your everyday life to be more, well, superhuman. In case you can't tell, I have a smile on my face, and it's because, have you ever met somebody that you just kind of click with right away? I met our guest at Paleo FX, and I went up and spoke to him because I've been a user of his shoes for a long time, and I really, really love what they have going on. My guest today is Steven Sashin. He's the CEO of Zero Shoes, that's X-E-R-O Shoes. He's a lifelong athlete. He's a former All-American gymnast and current Masters All-American sprinter. Steven is a serial entrepreneur and I didn't actually know this, an Emmy Award-winning TV personality. Steven and his wife, co-founder Lena Phoenix, appeared on the hit ABC show Shark Tank. Yes, you heard that correctly. Where they turned down a $400,000 offer from Mr. Wonderful himself, Kevin O'Leary. When not building zero shoes, well, don't be ridiculous. That's all that Stephen actually does. And he says that at the beginning of the show. So, this conversation was so much fun for me, and I really enjoyed it because Stephen is just a wealth of knowledge. We talked about Stephen's early beginnings as a meditation instructor and why he may question some of the things coming out of the meditation world. Some of the stories that Stephen relays actually got me thinking about my own life and I thought it was very helpful. Then we got into how Zero Shoes started and the whole theory behind natural movement and the science behind it and how it can maybe lead to just frankly better outcomes for people, better performance outcomes, less injuries. I've used both the Hana as well as the Prio shoe. And I have to say that Zero shoes are some of my favorite shoes out there. I would really love it if they came out with a dress shoe, but maybe something in the future. If you want to take a look at the show notes, and I must say that Steven does reference a wealth of information here, so do take a look at those. They're going to be found at decodingsuperhuman.com slash That's X-E-R-O. I hope you enjoy this podcast as much as I did because again, it's so much more than just talking about zero shoes. It's talking about just mindset and really the personal development world in general. So enjoy and have a great day. Steven, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much. Very happy to be here. Well, I say that now, but I have no idea what's going to happen. So...
0: (laughs) Yeah, you may be hating me after a couple of minutes, a, couple, a few volleys here. <laughs> but, uh, you know, Stephen, we had the chance to talk at Paleo FX, and I'm so glad we were able to catch up on this forum because uh, our conversation was so interesting to me that I, I had to have you back on. Well, you. And so you were telling me a little bit about your background. And before you got into creating what I will call the most epic barefoot technology shoes, ever and maybe I'm not classifying that right, but you were a longtime meditator. What how did you get into meditation and what type of meditation were you doing? I'm sorry, I'm
1: laughing because I hadn't thought about the answer to this question in a long time. So I when I was in fifth grade, the principal of my elementary school sent a letter home to my that said, please ask Stephen to stop hypnotizing the fifth grade class. <laughs> um, so you're not old enough to remember, but there was there was a, a catalog for kids and particularly young boys. It was the greatest catalog ever. It was the Johnson Smith catalog. That's okay, the Smith catalog was a whole bunch of little goofy, weird things. I mean, look it up. You find it online, and you'll see the stuff that's in there. It's you will regret that it no longer exists in the way that it does. It's one of those things that you know. During the summer, if you were at camp, you would pour over this catalog and you want everything in it. And so, uh, levitating balls that were just you know magnets, uh, sea monkeys—I uh, mean, you name it—it it was in there. And one thing was in there was the hypno disc. And so, I bought the hypno disc, and it had a little pamphlet on how to how to hypnotize people. And so, I just followed the instructions of the pamphlet. And then I—I uh, I was a geek, so I found all these books in the library. About how to do hypnosis. And one day, uh, my parents were having uh, dinner with some friends of theirs, and the other couple, he was the head of anesthesiology for this major New York hospital, and we're talking about the clinical applications of hypnosis in anesthesiology. And about 20 minutes into the conversation, he just stops dead in his tracks and he just looks at me and goes, You're 10. <laughs> And I, <laughs> and, and I, I remember thinking, yeah. So, um, so that was what kind of just, I had always been interested in mind things. And so when I was about eight to 10 is when I started doing self-hypnosis, which is a form of meditation. And then was just kept looking around and experimenting when I, my serious practice, if you want to call it that, began, oh my gosh. Yeah. And I think of it this way, my serious, serious practice began when I was about 18 and I had moved to Manhattan for the summer. Uh, I found a Couple of books in the Strand bookstore, which again, if you've ever been to New York and haven't gone to the Strand bookstore, you have to go. It's the greatest bookstore ever. Uh, And it was even better way back when, when it was just totally funky and uh, you would find just the most amazing things. And I I found um, a book about this one particular lineage of Vipassana. So most people know Vipassana through Jack Kornfield and uh, Joseph Goldstein and Sharon Salzberg and that crowd. But there was a number of other lineages. In fact, if you go to Asia, there are a number of different lineages of Vipassana. There's a book called Living Buddhist Masters that talks about uh, you know, at least a dozen different lineages. And the one that uh, I found in this book was started kind of started by this Burmese teacher named Uba Khin. And most people know Uba Khin through one of his students, a guy named S.N. Goenka, who died a few years ago. And Goenka has... And his people have led 10-day Vipassana courses all around the world. I mean, thousands and thousands of them. Uh, and I started doing those. I did, I don't know, 20-plus of those. And so that was the foundation of my serious practice, if you will. And I did that. Uh, I'll leave this as kind of a cliffhanger. I did that pretty assiduously till I was about 38. Now, you, that prompts you to ask a question.
0: So there, there's a few questions, oh, actually, there, right? Okay. I think one is more pressing than others, but I guess I don't know how old you are right I'm, now, Stephen. I'm but. 56. Okay, so zero, yeah. there's a gap between 38 and where you are right now. Yeah. Uh, how, how did how did that how did you spend that? If you don't mind going into it, or should we talk directly about zero? No, I don't mind at all.
1: So um, yeah, the appropriate question, uh, the way to frame it, uh, what happened at thirty eight?
0: So <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess yeah. You know, let's start there. What did you do? Well, yeah, You know, Stephen, you know why why thirty eight? Why did thirty eight all of a sudden end meditation? Funny that you ask, Bloomer. So <laughs> I, what happened was
1: was a couple of things. One is, I had become friendly with a bunch of people's gurus. I'm just one of these people who, if someone's up teaching the thing, I don't find myself intimidated or putting them on a pedestal. I view them as people that I should talk to. And so, somehow, and, and, and for people who are other people's gurus, that's actually an unusual experience. <laughs> They're used to people down and kowtowing. Uh, so, I had become friendly with a number of these people, people who had been the leaders of the meditation world for decades. And I. I had some interesting conversations. One of my favorites is a guy who's a very big deal Zen teacher who said to me, if my students knew what happened in my mind when I sat down every morning, they would first fire me and probably kill me. And the number of people that I met who were teaching, whose lives were very different than what they were presenting themselves as, who clearly had not received the golden ticket In other words, the promise of meditation is one thing, and the reality of their experience was not living up to that promise. Uh, Let's Buddhism 101, the point of Buddhism is the end of suffering. These people had not gotten anywhere close to anything resembling the end of suffering. Almost all of them had some experience where something happened that was quite profound, but there was not this state change to a way of being where suffering was no longer a phenomenon. Um, There's one person who I met who many people think has had that experience. I have some evidence that that's not necessarily the case. And if it is, and even if it is, let's just look at the numbers. How many people have been engaged in this practice over the last few thousand years and how many of them have gotten the end result? The number is so small, if not zero. The number is so small as to be inconsequential. The idea that it would happen to you, in fact, I'm gonna ramble for a while because that's this is such an interesting topic for me. I sat with a guy who, I happened to be in India for a friend's wedding, uh, Indian guy. And I sat with this one teacher for a morning because people said, you got to meet this guy. And someone said to him after his hours and hours of talking about whatever enlightenment was, according to his perspective, they said, well, how did you come to this realization? And he said, well, I was just born with it. And I looked around the room going, did anybody else just hear that? I mean, he just basically said, there's no hope for any of you or more accurately. What he really said is if this realization that I'm claiming I have, is going to happen for you, there's nothing you can do about it. You can't make it happen, you can't make it not happen. It's out of your control. And again, I'm looking around the room going, why is everyone still sitting here? Uh, and the reason they were still sitting there is at the end of his three and a half hours, he threw a carrot at the end of the stick and said, You know, um, here's something you can do that, well, I may as well tell you. He said, Here's uh, a thing you can do while you're waiting to see if this happens. At the end of the day, sit down relax, have a beer. If you need to have a beer, have something harder. If you need something harder, I laughed. no one else did. Um, and, and then think, did you, what did you do today? What were you responsible for? And check and see how you were responsible for it. And if you think that you were responsible because there was a thought that arose that then led you to do something, just ask yourself, did you make that thought arise or did it just appear? Now, I really liked this because I had at that time been teaching something similar. But then he added something that I never added, which is, if you keep pondering this, you will eventually come to this realization that I just described. And I went, son of a. Bitch. you just spent three hours saying there's nowhere to go and nothing to do and no one who can do it and now you just threw a carrot out saying if you do this technique you know it'll guarantee that it gets you there that's why people sit in this room day after day after day after day so um you know I, I found that really annoying and i and i and i saw and see that a lot in the meditative and spiritual world people saying nothing ever happened to no one and my answer to them is then why do you know the date and time at which it happened and why did you change your name to something hindu after that you know so, <laughs> so backing up um So at 38, two things happened. One is I kept seeing, it finally hit me that not only had I not received the benefits that I thought were promised in all the texts, but no one that I knew did, especially the teachers. But the bigger thing that happened was this. I realized that my entire practice had been based on this very subtle idea that there was something maybe fundamentally wrong with me, but something wrong with me. I couldn't even necessarily put my finger on it. That meditation would cure. It would fix it. I would get some sort of bonus points at the end. And I started investigating that fundamental idea, is there something wrong with me? Or what are the things that I think are wrong with me? And what's Mm -hmm. the evidence that these things are wrong with me? And the whole idea of something wrong with me fell apart. I was no longer able to believe that. I'm not saying I'm Mm -hmm. perfect, I'm not saying I'm not an asshole, some if not much of the time, <laughs> depends, on, <laughs> depends on who you ask um, or you know what kind of conversation we're having. I'm, I'm actually not most of the time, but regardless, uh, it's, I'm not trying to make any positive claim. I'm merely claiming that the concept that there's something wrong with me has no weight. And since my practice was based on this idea, that I was trying to fix something wrong with me, I could no longer continue it, but I've had this Lifelong fascination with how the mind works as an undergraduate in college. I was doing research in cognitive psychology. I did research on cognitive aspects of motor skill acquisition and things like, you know, do we have an innate sense of rhythm and I've always been fascinated with how the mind works. And so what I found myself doing is sitting in our hot tub at night, examining the mechanism of perception itself, examining the function of awareness. Like how do we know things? How do we think basically? And in looking at the process rather than trying to manipulate the process. So meditation, fundamentally, is a manipulation of the process. You're trying to focus your attention. You're trying to, or be open to things just happening as they are. Whatever your practice is, it's a certain kind of manipulation from your normal day-to-day experience. I instead just started looking at the function or the the mechanism of the day-to-day experience. And interestingly, when you do that, then that starts to fall apart, and you end up having these rather profound changes in the experience of subject and object and of, well, of everything, frankly. And um, this was just something I was doing kind of casually. It was fun. I came up with a dozen or so. These different practices. One day a friend of mine uh, essentially talked me into teaching them and it turned into a thing that I, well I did a course and recorded it and it turned into a thing that I referred to as the instant advanced meditation course. So for people who know the different lineages of of meditation, it was an sort of Advaita or Dzogchen style of meditation or awareness. So these are non-dual styles of practice and uh, again, a number of different techniques and I, I developed this course and I was offering this both in, in real time around the world and online and through CDs that I made back in the days when you had CDs <laughs> and, uh, and I did that, uh, up until the time we started zero shoes. In fact, we were planning on doing kind of a major launch of that project. And then we, then zero shoes started happening. And there was one other thing that happened And this, is the end of the long answer to your simple question, the more popular this stuff got the more I kept running into people who had a very strong identity of being seekers. And what that means is that if you can show them something where they no longer need to seek because they can find what they've been looking for, it can really mess with their identity. And there are some people who really don't like that. They like the identity of being a seeker. And so when you mess with someone's identity, they only have a couple of choices. One is just their identity Uh, The other is run from the room screaming. And the third is try and take you down because you're clearly the cause of their lack of identity. Now, since I had no messianic intentions at all, nor did I have any arrogant intentions that anyone needed to hear a word I had to say, I couldn't justify the increasing level of annoyance that would come from people who just would rather scream and yell and blame and attack than have a simple experience of, you know, everything being okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just couldn't think of a reason to make my life unhappy. And even if the unhappy factor was 10% of the happy factor, my wife and I were retired at the time. I wasn't doing this for the money. Um, I wasn't doing it for self aggrandizement. It it just, that amount of unfun was really unfun. Mm-hmm. So I stopped. <laughs> and that was you know, 10 years later.
0: So you completely, it sounds like you found a way to completely obliterate the self-help industry in a way. Yep. And as a result, you have 10% of people that are coming to this experience who are desperately seeking that quote-unquote enlightenment and they they came after you. And
1: Look, look, look there are people who... I live outside of Boulder, Colorado. I lived mm-hmm. in Boulder for twenty-one years. There are people whose entire identity is being a, again, being a spiritual seeker, mm-hmm. going to workshops every weekend to try to improve themselves in some way. And and you ask them, you know, how's it going? <laughs> and, uh, and, I, and look, I'll, I'll confess, every now and then I miss the unbridled optimism that arises when you hear someone suggest that they have some technique that will give you the thing that you want. I don't miss the unbridled depression that occurs when you find it's yet another thing that doesn't work, that didn't give you what it was promised, and that the only conclusion you can come to is there's something wrong with you, because that's what the damn teacher just told you. I find that reprehensible. I find it morally repugnant. And so, yeah, the end of the self, look, the end of the self-help movement is easy. Uh, we just need to start thinking about things from an evolutionary psychology perspective. Most of what we think of as evidence of a problem about who we are is just the evidence that we're human beings. This is the way <laughs> humans are built. So one day I'm walking with a friend of mine and she made some comment. She says something like, I just need to you know, listen to my body so I know what it wants to eat. And I literally fell on the ground laughing hysterically. And she said, what's going on? I said, well, first of all, I used to say something like that, but I never heard it until you just said it. So you have this idea that somehow there's this thing called listening to your body. I don't know what the hell that means. That when you listen, it's going to tell you what foods to eat that will eventually put you in a state that you want to be in. A certain kind of health or more accurately, a certain shape of your body. I know what your body wants to eat. French fries and ice cream and chocolate bar. That's what it wants to eat. Yeah. It's designed to look for calories. It's designed to look for you know, certain macronutrients and micronutrients as well. But fundamentally, calories—that's what it's telling you. You're just arguing with it. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know. So that's just a fundamental thing. Look, we did not evolve to be able to look into a glass of water and determine whether there's be- uh, harmful bacteria in it. So what we evolved instead is this hypersensitivity to what's going on in our body after we eat or drink something to know if we need to go try and throw up to make sure that doesn't kill us. We have a lot of hypersensitivities to things going wrong because that's how we stayed alive. And since nothing is keeping us, nothing is threatening to kill us on a regular basis, we just apply that same looking for something wrong to our internal state. That doesn't mean it's wrong. We have, quote, unpleasant thoughts.
0: So what this is brilliant so as you're sitting there in your hot tub and sort of unpacking this question of like okay is there anything wrong with me was there anything that that got you started because to me this is exactly how i feel but i what what got you started along that path and after this i do want to get into the shoes because that's the main purpose of the show but
1: yeah when a mommy loves a daddy very much Mm -hmm. uh and and i say that half in jest it was uh look i'm a five foot five guy for the same reason I'm five foot five is the same reason that that stuff was interesting to me. It's just one of those. That's the way I came out of it out. Um, I have the particular way my brain seems to work the things I find fascinating. That's just the way it is. It's now, that doesn't mean it can't necessarily be engendered in someone else, but it's sort of like the, you know, another bit of nonsense, the 10,000 hour rule uh, about becoming a master in something. And the reason I say it's nonsense is there's lots of people who spent 10,000 plus hours who are not masters, and there's many people who become masters and fewer. But the bigger thing is anyone, regardless whether they spent 10000 plus or minus uh, or became a master, it's why is it that they're the kind of person who wants to spend that time doing that thing? That's the irreproducible uh, phenomenon. That's You can't fake that. You can't just put in the hours. You've got to be the kind of person who wants to put in the hours and who has the skill to back it up. It's a combination. It's not as simple as... It's just putting in the hours. So same thing. People, For some reason, people think that when it comes to meditation and mental phenomenon, that we all have the same propensity and opportunity and skill set in the way they would never think about that when it comes to athletics or math or you know fill in the blank on whatever other endeavor of human society there is. We think that we all have the, the same possibilities. And that just doesn't seem to be the case. People, some people are better at math than others, just the way it is. Some people are better at meditating than others, just the way it is. One of my good friends is a Tibetan monk, like actual Tibetan guy. And one day he calls me up and he says, hey, I'm leaving monastery. I said, leaving the monastery, why? He goes, too much politics. And- <laughs>
0: it's like the place where you think that politics don't exist right
1: exactly and it hit me that the people that stay in the monastery for a long time they just have that whatever psychological trait that allows them to live in that comfortably and it's not because they're not living in it because they are fill in the blank whatever quality we think they have they're just the kind of person for whom that works and other people not no big deal.
0: You seem to have this ex- extremely investigative personality, and you've gone through meditation and, and sort of breaking that down, breaking down this whole self-help industry. How did you transition into
1: shoes? Well, you just nailed it, and that was really very um, astute and clever of you. Uh, my whole thing is, is investigation. It's looking one step underneath whatever I thought the bottom of the thing is. And so what happened for shoes is the same kind of thing, but the impetus was that I got back into sprinting when I was 45 after a 30-year break and was getting injured pretty much constantly. And a friend of mine suggested that I take off my shoes and run barefoot and see if I learned anything from doing that. And what I learned was why I was getting injured, and I learned how to correct the thing that was causing my injuries because doing it wrong when you're barefoot hurts. Doing it right does not hurt. In shoes, you can't tell the difference. And so that was problematic. Uh, And so once I had that experience – natural movement and the benefit that I got from natural movement. I became, my injuries went away. I got faster. I became a master's all American sprinter. Uh, Technically for men over 55, you could be talking to the fastest Jew in the world. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Um, We haven't had the race yet, but you know, so uh, I looked at the results. So I, I just got fascinated with the same question of what's the essential truth under about footwear and what you discover pretty much effortlessly is that in the last 45 to 50 years of, the modern running shoe, there's zero evidence that these things improve performance or reduce injury. And what happened in a way back in the early 70s was kind of like if you're, for people who remember the, the VCR wars between Betamax and VHS. Mm-hmm. Betamax was the superior technology, VHS won because of marketing, mostly because they made it available free and so porn people started using it. But the same thing happened with footwear. There was a natural movement style of footwear that existed and then Nike came out with you know big padded motion control stuff and sold better. And so, and the footwear industry is just a ton of copycats. And so that became the industry standard, despite a complete lack of evidence for the benefit. And in fact, some recent, research shows that the very design of those shoes could be causing the problems that those shoes claim that they help cure.
0: We're going to unpack the whole benefits of zero drop shoes or zero shoes in general, but yeah. okay. So you decided to start a shoe company and oh, that's overstating it. <laughs> What happened was um,
1: I started making these minimalist sandals based on this 10,000-year-old idea mm-hmm. for myself and it my friends, and, and it, was a, it was a shampoo commercial. They told two friends, and they told two friends, and they told two friends.
0: You have the fractal guy, kind of build out, right?
1: Yeah, uh, and a guy uh, named Michael Sandler was writing a book called Barefoot Running. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had a that and he said, "Hey, if you treated this little hobby like a business and had a website, I would put you in a, this book." <clears throat> now I had built about a thousand websites up to that point, so I rush home and I pitched this idea to my wife, and she says, "Wow, this is a really stupid idea, and <laughs> definitely do not do this." And I said, "Yeah, okay." And she goes to bed around nine, and I think by about ten thirty, I had a website up, and we thought it would be just a little hobby thing that we would do, maybe we would make a car payment, and within six weeks, it was our full-time job. And not very long after we realized that what we were on is the beginning of a revolution of waking people up to the reality of natural movement and the benefits of natural movement and away we went. And it has been just a ride that we've been on. You know, It has been one amazing lucky phenomenon after another, backed up by a shit ton of hard work. But um, yeah, the idea that we decided to do this is greatly overstayed. In reality.
0: <laughs> I, I love <laughs> hearing stories like that, by the way. It's, a, it's fantastic. It's kind of how I landed in the podcast world as well. But uh, in terms of natural movement, do you mind just going into a little bit around the, the benefits and the science and everything behind uh, natural Good. movement, specifically barefoot? Because I know Good. you've probably delved into all of this in great detail, and I'd love to hear it.
1: Well, let's just start with a simple thing. <clears throat> One quarter of the bones and joints of your whole body are in your feet and ankles. You have more nerve endings in the sole of your feet than anywhere at your fingertips and your lips. This is not an accident. You're supposed to use these things. They're supposed to bend and move and flex and feel the world. If you don't let them do that job, that function tries to move upstream into joints that aren't designed for that. Your ankle, your knee, your hip, your back. And since those joints aren't designed for that, that can cause all manner of pain and problem. Uh, There's no other part of your body where you would think that you're not supposed to use it. There's no other part of your body where if you stop using it, you don't lose it. And so natural movement is just letting your feet do what they're made to do and flex, move and feel to the extent that you can do that while dealing with some realities. Like there's certain circumstances where you need a little protection or there's certain circumstances where for fashion reasons or for social acceptability, you can't be barefoot. And so our goal is to make footwear that allows you to have as much of that minimalist barefoot experience as possible, given those other constraints. We're the first ones to say that A, barefoot is best, and B, what our shoes are doing, even though they're super close to barefoot, is not the same. Because when you just put your foot on any surface, even a smooth surface, you get so many different sensations and so much different feedback than you do if you just put a little four millimeter piece of rubber between you and the ground, which is what our simplest product does. So uh, we just try to do the best we can. Irene Davis at Harvard, she's this wonderful researcher. She's mostly researching minimalist footwear because she says most people aren't going to go barefoot. So let's just deal with giving the most people the most value we
0: can given the constraints of reality. There's a number of different ways I can go here. So you covered a little bit of it in terms of ankle mobility. Is there any truth to the matter? I, I saw some research pieces about how it's more calorie efficient to be in sort of a, a minimalist shoe. Is that correct or is that just a little unfounded?
1: Yeah, I haven't looked at the research, so I can't give a specific comment. What I can what I can say is efficiency is a function of movement of how well you move and you're going to be more or less efficient. You're going to be most efficient doing the thing you're most comfortable doing. Mm -hmm. And so if you change to something else, you're going to be less efficient at first because your body doesn't know how to do that thing. I'm, I'm iffy about making a saying that's a, there's a positive on that statement because I can't imagine what kind of study you could design that would reliably show that. Yeah, That's a very tricky bit of info to look for.
0: Yeah, and if I, if I dig it up, I'll send it to you because I, I was kind of curious about the study design myself, and of course, it's one of these papers.
1: Let me do the opposite. There was a study that was done here at the University of Colorado mm-hmm. that showed that running on a little bit of foam, 10 millimeters of foam, was more energy efficient, and I'll define that in a second, than running barefoot. Now, what they meant by energy efficient was measuring VO2 max, okay. just how well you Oxygen. Now, that was an interesting study to me because no one ever made the claim that running barefoot was was more energy efficient. It was hand waving. That study was basically done at the recommendation of a footwear company to try and prove that their footwear was better than running barefoot. Um, but again, no one ever made that claim that barefoot running was more efficient. It's certainly less weight on your feet. So that could be valuable. But the bigger thing is the people that were in that study, I said to the guy the guy who did the study, you said you brought in accomplished barefoot runners. You didn't bring anyone that I know. You didn't bring me in. I'm one of the most accomplished barefoot runners in town. No one that I know has been in your lab, so I don't really know who you studied. And by the way, we know in the pharmaceutical world that if the pharmaceutical company pays to for a study for their drug that it tends to err in their favor, well you're a Nike sponsored lab. So don't you think there's the same kind of unconscious bias? bias yeah. yeah, that started a big fight. Uh so uh, but you know and and the idea of energy efficiency, actually the same guy did a study recently on the new Nike Super Lightweight Vaporfly shoe and said that these shoes are definitely more efficient or more accurately your VO2 max is better when you're wearing these shoes, but he did have the wherewithal to say we don't know how that how that translates to performance. Now, my answer is we know that it doesn't translate to performance. And the evidence is when Nike did the two-hour marathon experiment, the three runners dropped out. So, you know, uh, so that's not a thing. And anyway, the bottom line is that energy efficiency is not necessarily the thing that we care about. Mm -hmm. We care about things like Uh, what happens to intrinsic foot muscle strength? If you stop using your feet, if you bind them up, if you make them not move like any part of your body, you put it in a cast, it gets weaker. If you let them move, they get stronger. What about balance? When you can feel things and move things, that's going to be better for balance. And there's research coming out that can show that. What about things like knee osteoarthritis? When you, land hard on your heel, that sends a big jolt of force into your, into your knee. When you land more gently by using your muscles, ligaments, and tendons, like the natural springs and shock absorbers they are, that can take the pressure off. And Research from Irene Sacco in Brazil shows that knee osteoarthritis can be reversed. What about plantar fasciitis? We, there's also some research that's showing that moving your feet naturally and landing more naturally can get rid of plantar fasciitis. These are all, this, there's all this research that's starting to come out about things that we've known anecdotally because I've been hearing it from thousands of customers for years, but now people are backing it up. And it's incredibly exciting that we're in a space, the whole natural movement footwear category that can, that has the possibility of very soon having a bunch of data behind it saying, no, 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 not only are these things cool, com- super comfortable and stylish, they literally are better for you. And that gets me really giddy.
0: (laughs) So orthotics, do you think there's any benefit there? I imagine it probably makes you want to vomit a little bit in your mouth.
1: Yeah, a little bit. Um, So there's a, on our website, if you do a search for orthotics, you'll find a a blog post that I wrote that talks about uh, a woman who has my favorite name in the world. She's a science writer named Gina Collada. And Gina is, uh, writes for the Times and other people, did an evaluation on orthotics and found that basically they seem to help 10% of the people sometime, but we don't know which 10% and there's no difference between a $500 custom-made orthotic and a Dr. Scholl's insult.
0: Sounds like placebo.
1: Not necessarily, but what it it probably is is something that can be helpful for a little bit of time. You should use them as a way of recovering from whatever the problem is and then get out of them and start using your feet naturally and strengthening them. Mm-hmm. That's the real value. Again, anything that keeps you from moving naturally is problematic. So there's there's a orthotic company. I was next to them at a trade show. They had a, a uh, an ad. There was a drawing of a barefoot in profile and then a drawing of a barefoot in profile standing on their orthotic. And it said, 34% less stress instantly or something like that. And I said, were you measuring, quote, stress by measuring muscle activation with an electromyograph? They said, yeah, very proudly. And I said, so what you're saying is the moment I step on this thing, my muscles are working 34% less, which means I'm getting one third weaker instantly. That's a good point. So wouldn't it be better if I put my foot in a cast and had a hundred percent less stress? Were, <laughs> well, well, no, I mean, it's not true. I said, well, how much weaker should I get to get better? And of course they have no answer. By the way, when I say things like that to those people, they're the ones who think I'm an asshole. <laughs> <laughs>
0: But I I just appreciate all of your honesty. Now, I I guess looking at the the whole argument of why not just go barefoot, and you and I have talked about (laughs) grounding before because obviously there's social implications to this, right? Like we can't just show up to a dinner barefoot uh, in some cases. Well, I do,
1: but uh, my my line when people ask me about Boulder, I go Boulder, Colorado is a place where they they say it's illegal to walk into Whole Foods barefoot, but it's totally fine if you're breastfeeding your dog. So, <laughs> so yes, barefoot is not socially acceptable around here for various reasons. Um, it's all very silly, um, but yes, the the whole grounding idea. Yeah let's um, get
0: let's get into this if you don't mind. Okay. I don't mind, but um,
1: there are some people who are going to have a problem with what I say. And and actually hopefully not because my whole response to the idea of grounding is again what you said I'm an investigative sort so let's look and see if there is an effect of being barefoot. Let's see what the cause might be and let's investigate to see if we're right or not. And the way you investigate to see if you're right or not is by looking for counterfactuals. Look to see if there are examples of the exact opposite of what you think is true to see if it's what happens. So like the guys who invented cold fusion, or they thought they invented cold fusion, one physicist said to them, everything that you do is founded on the idea that you're using heavy water. You're using deuterium instead of hydrogen. Um, so the easiest way to test and see if what you're doing is true is just replace the heavy water with regular water and see if you still get the same results. If you do, then this whole thing is nonsense because you shouldn't get the same results if you get rid of the key ingredient. And so they tested by putting in regular water and got the same results and went, Whoops. Okay, so for people who don't know, the fundamental premise about grounding goes like this. Every major thing going wrong in your body is caused by inflammation. The inflammation is caused by free radicals. Free radicals can be neutralized if you get these electrons that are in the ground to come up through your feet into your body and then everything will be great. Okay, so let's look for some counterfactuals. If that were true, then people who are who are habitually barefoot or animals that are habitually barefoot should be way, way healthier, but they're not. I mean, I can speak from my own N equals one experiment. I've been barefoot predominantly for 10 years. It has not made me any healthier, but regardless, the simple thing is go to a third world country where they don't have shoes and see if people are healthier. Mm -hmm. Look at your dog, look at your cat, look at anything that's connected to the ground all the time and see if it's healthier. It's not. Let's look at the second one. There's this idea that there's these electrons in the ground that will come up into your body. Your body, you can get a charge, an electrical charge on your skin, Because your body is actually very resistant. Your skin is very resistant to having electricity go through it, which is why 99.5% of humans who get struck by lightning have no effect. The the charge goes around the outside of your body into the ground. 100% of all trees that get hit by lightning explode. If you could be penetrated by electricity that easily, then you would explode when you got hit by lightning. So the fact that you can build up a charge is actually a good thing. Let's look at free radicals. So free radicals are not neutralized by electricity. They're neutralized by ions, which are electrically charged compounds. It's not the same as electricity. If it was just about electrons, you could just suck on a battery and then (laughs) neutralize free radicals because that's what gets electrons into you. But more, free radicals are a fundamental part of how your immune system works. So if you could ground yourself and get rid of free radicals entirely, you'd be dead within a very short amount of time. Um, And again, free radicals are not neutralized by, by electrons, but by ions. So, and then lastly, the idea that that's the cause of, you know, all manner of illness and injury, we just don't know that. So let's look for the simpler explanation and let's go back again to evolutionary principles. Sugar does not taste good. We evolved to like the taste of sugar because there's calories and we need the calories. Certain things we, we genetically engineered plants to be more tasteful so that we like them more because they have good calories in them. So similar idea with feet. We've got more nerve endings on the soles of our feet than anywhere, but our fingertips and our lips, as I said before. So feeling good is a thing that is a, how do I call it? Things don't feel good when we step on them. We evolve to learn that these things that we're stepping on or in, or this way that we're moving by using our feet is better. And so it feels good. Feeling good is not just, and a concept. It's a neurochemical process where your brain becomes essentially awash in certain chemicals that relate to feeling good. We know that reducing stress can have a positive impact on health. Feeling good is one way of reducing stress. So we step on something that feels good. We step on something our brain says, oh my gosh, I like that by releasing neurochemicals because of the response that it had to this, the, the sensations coming from the nerves in your feet and the rest of your body as well. Everything gets aligned well if you know, you're doing things that feel good. And that neurochemical bath um, can be useful. And that stress reduction may, in fact, help with certain kinds of illness, injury, etc. That's a, frankly, much simpler idea than one that violates many of the laws of physics biology and chemistry you're speechless
0: yeah i'm actually speechless and you actually when we talked about this the first time at the conference i I got caught off guard too because obviously a lot of this whole health world is talking about grounding and those kind of things but it's it's a hell of a lot to contemplate and i I mean it all makes to me just perfect sense right everything you say but it's a hell of a lot to contemplate
1: well i'd say it's the other way around and and that the story of why grounding is beneficial is actually harder to contemplate if you really, like, look into it and know it. If you don't know the physics, biology, and chemistry, it's a great narrative. And again, backing up to evolutionary principles, once we have a narrative, a story that we really like, that makes sense to us, and sometimes things will make sense even if we don't uh, have enough information for them to make sense, as long as it feels like A leads to B, or actually, more importantly, as long as it feels... Like this story will help us get something that we want. This goes back to our meditation thing. Mm -hmm. Then we'll lock onto it. This story that you can meditate and get to a place called the end of suffering is a wonderful story. It's an incredibly compelling story. And I guarantee that when I say I've never met anyone who, when you evaluate their life has gotten there, people will argue with me about that. And they will tell me about people that they don't know very well. And they will tell me about people that they've, that they've read about They will, you know, they will do a lot of things to hold on to that story because it's a very compelling story. We are wired as human beings to look for the causes that we think will reliably give us the results that will make us happy. Unfortunately, we're really, really bad at identifying those causes Mm -hmm. and we're good at making up stories that seem like they get us there, but don't actually, and we're even worse at remembering how bad we are at it and ultimately going back to bring this into a loop. Daniel Gilbert from Harvard wrote a book called stumbling on happiness. And his method for becoming happy is actually straight out of a Buddhist teaching, which is go find as many people as possible who have the thing that you think will make you happy and see if they're happier than you are. And you will most likely find that they are not. And once you find that enough times, you'll just stop believing the thought when it arises saying, this thing will make me happy. The Buddhist version of that is a woman comes to the Buddha, uh, And her son had died saying to the buddha bring him back to life and the buddha realizes that he can't convince her that he can't do that so he says good good go find a mustard seed from a household that has never experienced death and uh, then i can use that to bring your son back to life and so she goes around the village and keeps asking at every house you know can i get a mustard seed and they go sure here's as many as you want and they go oh wait have you ever experienced death in your household and they will regale her with all the stories of people dying until she comes back to the Buddha and realizes death is just a part of life. Now, of course, because it's a Buddhist story, they end that with, and then she became awakened. Um, now, the more interesting part to me is I read the same story in a children's book of Buddhist stories and it had an ending that I liked even better, which was she came and told the Buddha, she realized death is just a part of life, mm-hmm. and they both cried over the loss of her son. And it, that I'm going to start crying when I think of it now. It's the sweetest thing to stop trying to change reality and that sometimes it hurts sometimes it doesn't and that's just the way this one works and that's okay and so um anyway that's a bit of a tangent
0: but a a great tangent nevertheless okay getting back to zero so the sandals you went from the sandals to was it the hannah that came next or what happened was we
1: started with a do-it-yourself sandal making kit Mm -hmm. based on thousand year old idea. And then people said, that's cool, but I don't want to make my own. Yeah, And so we with the ready to wear version of that same sandal. So it had a, it's a thong style, huarache style sandal. Well, huarache just means sandal in Spanish, but a uh, thong style sandal. Uh, and then people say, that's cool, but I don't like stuff between my toes, even though our sandal doesn't work like a flip flop because it holds all the way around your foot. But we said, that's cool. So we made a sport sandal and then people say, that's great, but I still need shoes at work. So in two, late 2016, we came out with our HANA casual canvas shoe. And then in 17, we came out with Elena, the Lena, the uh, uh, women's version of that same shoe. And then in 2000, I can't, I can't keep track of time anymore. Uh, oh, then we came out with our Prio, our running shoe. And then late 2017, our, light, our lightweight hiking boot, the Daylight Hiker, our Colton, our leather chukka style boot. Um, I know I'm forgetting something when I do this. And then most recently our Terraflex trail running shoe and a new sandal. That's the Genesis, which is kind of harkens back to the first ready to wear one we made, but even simpler and more comfortable. Um, and then we've got another dozen things on our to-do list.
0: So is one of those dress shoes.
1: Uh, well, the Colton, if you, if you treat the leather, if you wax it or oil it, it, it can kind of fake its way into being a dress shoe. Mm-hmm. Our Commitment is to natural movement, and our commitment is to give people products that they can use and enjoy and experience the benefits of natural movement throughout their entire day. And so I'm not legally allowed to say what we actually are or aren't doing other than what I just said about our commitment.
0: (laughs) And for the record, I have used the HANA in very formal situations and gotten away with it. So it works out quite well. Uh, Steven, I know you have to go soon, but final three sort of rapid fire questions for you. Top tool or technology you're using to reach peak performance. You could say your shoes if you want.
1: Every night when Lane and I go home, we grab some food and we sit in front of the television on our couch and hug each other, whatever we're doing. It's how we decompress and relax and get some time to enjoy each other's company in a very hectic business world that's a great one.
0: Uh, I guess top trick for enhancing your overall cognition. Hmm.
1: Um, I have no idea. I mean, I literally, I, 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 can't think of any, first of all, I don't have a frame of reference for what enhancing my cognition would be. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how I would answer that.
0: En- en- enhancing
1: focus. Wait for it. And what I mean by that is there's times where I get more done in a day, in a day than I will normally do in a week. And I and I don't I have no way of predicting that, and I have no way of causing that. It just when it happens, I run with it, and I just wait till it's over, and then I know the next day I'm going to be uh, completely nonproductive, and that's cool.
0: How you put that is that, that's that's resonating with me very well. Uh, last one is favorite book on peak performance.
1: None, because again, I don't know. Wait, i I've got to tell this quick story. So, a friend of mine's a world champion a marathon runner mm-hmm. and someone was talking to her about being in the zone, and how she gets in the zone and what she does to be in the zone. And it's all about the zone. And after she went on this 20 minute talk about what she does to get in the zone and blah, blah, blah. I said, ever have any, uh, said any personal best when you felt like shit and weren't in the zone. And she goes, Oh well, yeah. I said, ever feel like you were in the zone and did not finish the race. She goes, yeah. I said, well, there goes that zone. crap." <laughs> So I, I, don't have, again, it's not something I concern myself with. Uh, so, and anyone who claims that they have a specific technique that reliably does this and reliably produces results, I would be, I'd be quite skeptical of, mm-hmm. uh, that said it's there, it's the flip side. So the, the best thing for me is that I just don't care what I think. So I got over the idea that there's some way to think some way to be something that has required to get the result that I want. And when that thought comes up, I just don't really give a crap about it. And so I just try and do as much as I can do when I can do it and when I can't, it's just one of those days. There's certain kinds of things, content that I, I just can't write it till I write it. I wrote a piece um, for a couple of magazines recently and I sent it to the editor and I said, my apologies, I just wrote this in one draft and I haven't edited it yet. And the guy said, wrote me back and said, are you kidding me? And I said, why? He goes, this is like ready to publish. And I said, well, I had to wait till it was in my head clearly. And then I just got it out of my head, Mm -hmm. but I couldn't have done it before it happened. I I tried to, I tried to work on it before it it was there and it didn't work. And so some days it's there, some days it's not. And I just don't care (laughs) which day it is because it's out of my control.
0: Yeah. So You know, I do the best I can when I can do it and I do the best I can when I can't do it. Uh, Steven, this is absolutely brilliant. Uh, I do know you have to go, but I want to say thank you for the shoes. Uh, You know, Hana, as well as the Prio, I love them. I I wear them pretty much every single day, except when I'm barefoot, of course. And (laughs) I'll, I'll give the sandals a try the next time I'm in the U.S.
1: Well, thank you so much. It's, it's always a pleasure to have this conversation because I don't really get to do it very often. Um, and it's my favorite conversation. And it, even more, it's my favorite conversation when I get to do it with someone who gets the whole breadth of what we're talking about, which you do. So that was a real treat. Thanks.
0: Great. Well, Stephen, thank you so much. And everybody listening, thank you for tuning in. All the show notes will be found at decodingsuperhuman.com slash zero. That's X-E-R-O. And I'll, I look forward to hearing from you guys soon. Superhumans. Did you enjoy that podcast? If so, can you do me two favors? First, head over to wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you can just drop a little five-star rating in there. I'm a little bit selfish, a little bit biased perhaps, but it does help the word get out on Decoding Superhuman. I really appreciate it. The other thing that I would love is, can you drop me a note? What would you change? What would you do better? Podcast at DecodingSuperhuman.com. I read all the emails and frankly, I'm always looking to improve. So thank you very much and have an epic day.